bad and bullshit. Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. I'm Erin, and I'm here today to introduce you to our podcast episode today. Erica and I spoke to Annamie Paul, the leader of the Green Party of Canada, about issues important to women in Canada. And while we didn't specifically talk about her experience on the campaign trail as a woman of color, we did get some insight into her values as leader, as a black woman, Canada's first racialized, first black woman party leader and what that means for her party and how that influences her perspective on public policy. And so I hope you enjoyed this episode and thank you so much for listening. Let's start with long-term care. So the long-term care promises from the New Democrats seem to align quite well with those of the Greens, uh, namely the national standards of care and the removal of profit from the long-term care system. And the Greens are also supportive of higher pay for personal support workers, which is something that right now only the Liberals are proposing. So how will the Greens be able to influence the publicization of long-term care, the increase in pay for personal support workers and national care standards in either a Liberal, Conservative or New Democratic government? Well, I mean, just to clarify, we we have supported increasing pay for personal support workers uh, for, I I, I, I don't know how far back, but certainly for, you know, a couple of years, few years, maybe longer than that. Um, I'm a Black woman uh, whose family is from the Caribbean, which means I definitely have lots of personal support workers. Uh, in my family, um, my grandma was a personal support worker. My uh, my auntie is a personal support worker. Uh, so I definitely believe that they uh, they need and deserve more pay. Uh, it's backbreaking work. It's um, it's a vocation, and it's done with a lot of love, and it deserves to be respected. And especially if we want to uh, meet the shortages of people, because we we have a severe shortage of people willing to do this work, because it's it isn't respected and it isn't well paid. Um, so we believe that an issue like reforming long-term care, given the humanitarian crisis that we've seen during the pandemic in long-term care, should not be a partisan issue. And the things that we proposed, they're actually not our ideas. You know, we had, I, I hosted um, uh, roundtables and panels almost every week uh, for months on long-term care. And so what we proposed there is the result of what we heard from families and loved ones and uh, and associations and nurses and doctors, et cetera. So if we agree on something across party lines, let's get to work. I mean, I will work with anyone who's willing uh, to make sure that people are not unnecessarily dying in long-term care. Um, that, that is something that we should all be able to agree on. Uh, the way we were able to agree on Medicare, that was passed unanimously by all parties back in the 80s. Uh, and so we will say what we always do, um, whomever is ready to work on progressive social policy to get people the help, help they need and to live in dignity, we're there to uh, work with them on it. We don't need all the credits, um, you know, we don't have all of the ideas and uh, we're willing to work uh, collaboratively. Well, 
Does that send you into silence? No, 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 no. I, I'm actually trying to think about whether or not I should ask this question, and I'll do it because that's the way I am. Go for it. Um, expect nothing less from you, Erica. (laughs) So, to me, I was, I was working on a, I'm, I'm, I was working on a piece for Press Progress, and uh, it had to do with work from home and the gender effects, right? And what I found was that a lot of BIPOC women, um, especially Asians, South Asians, Black people, you're, you know, you are, you're like me, like my parents are Guyanese. They came here, they settled, yada, yada, yada. Okay. Is it better to support um, long-term care institutionally or is it better to have more support in the home? We need both. Okay. Uh, we have to, rec- we need both. Um, we have to recognize that there are some people who, whose needs are so profound uh, that they absolutely are going to have to be in an institutional setting and uh, in, in some kind of, you know, in some kind of a home. Uh, and there will be no way to, to completely eliminate that. So there, 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 there has to be a way to ensure that if the time arrives that you or a loved one uh, or someone in your community has to absolutely has to go into a facility, that uh, the standards are there, that uh, it's staffed well, that the, um, the uh, standards of care are there, that you can live in dignity. Um, on the other hand, Canada has spent far too much money uh, on on warehousing uh, long-term care residents. There are many people who are in long-term care simply because there is no alternative. Uh, We know that anyone who can remain in their home or remain in the general community, almost everyone prefers that. Uh, And Canada, unfortunately, spends uh, significantly less, about a third less, just over a third less, than uh, other wealthy countries, so other OECD countries on community-based supports uh, for people to remain in their homes. So this is the moment to rethink it all. Uh, the tragedy, and we, we're barely talking about it in this election, you know, I, this is a tragedy that is, you know, it's an epic tragedy. Um, over 15,000 people died and we have the worst record of deaths in long-term care by almost double, you know, uh, per capita. Uh, compared to other wealthy countries. How will we avoid that in the future? It requires a complete rethink. And this is the time for us to say, how do we want um, to, to uh, see people age in the future? How can we make it more dignified? How can we improve the quality of life? It's a root to stem kind of change that we need. Yeah, and I think one of the communities that's overlooked in this whole discussion are the family members who are looking after these people too, right? Because sometimes they just, these individuals who require the care just require such a high level of care that it becomes really taxing for the people who, the family members providing them with the care that they're not able to work jobs, that they don't, you know, they're puts themselves in a precarious situation and, you know, a lot of mental health struggles too. And they spend their whole days just like taking care of their families. Not that it's not worth it because it's a family member, but, you know, there is a trade-off there. Oh, and, and the system is, is designed, right? The system has been designed uh, uh, to be uh, 
overly dependent, and I would say, frankly, completely de dependent in many cases on the, uh, the intense involvement uh, and interventions of family members and loved ones. Uh, in the case of my father, who died in, in the second wave, you know, his story is very typical of those who did not die of COVID, but because of COVID in long-term care. Uh, you know, the families were and the loved ones were locked out because of the pandemic. Uh, the personal support workers were stretched to, to the limits and many facilities, of course, were understaffed. And facilities depend on families to catch those little things that go missing under those circumstances. And so he's one of the many people who had a completely treatable um, infection, a bladder infection, you know, I mean, nothing, just a course of antibiotics that ended up progressing all the way to uh, sepsis and blood poisoning before it was found. And he was, he was dead within a few hours of arriving at the hospital. And the facility that he was in, we, we spoke with and, and heard from other families that was the same, and there was the same story in another facility and so on. And so um, the family element is, is key. Uh, we shouldn't depend on it the way that we have been, but of course families want to be involved and, and will need to be. So that's where things like guaranteed livable income come into play. Uh, you know, there are moments in our lives when we need to take a step back from uh, one thing in order to care for someone we love, for instance. Um, it shouldn't mean financial catastrophe. You should be able to do it with some, some breathing space. And so that's the idea. And certainly, uh, as you both said, it would help women. It would help uh, women first. Uh, it would help uh, marginalized women, racialized women, uh, also uh, high on the list. Because let's face it, much of what we've just talked about is a feminized issue. The people in long-term care uh, mostly are women. The people who take care of the people in long-term care are also women. You know, um, they're the ones and the people who care for the people uh, in the family who care for the people in long term care are also women. Um, and of course, all of this is why this issue uh, has been so deprioritized, I believe, um, for so long. Also, the personal support workers are most likely uh, immigrant women. Absolutely. Um, racialized women. Absolutely. Women with precarious work situations who Absolutely. also then have to go home and take care of their families. Mm -hmm. There was a there was a thank you, grandma. Yeah, there was. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to bring in a, a, a pop culture context and then we'll move on to the next question. And yeah. I remember there was this Mad Men um, line where um, you had all of these, you know, uh, um, white privileged women talking about how terrible it is in the South. And then you had this contrast with the black maid, right? And one of the insults that Betty Draper gave to the maid was, well, how are you taking care of your own family then? And that hit me because, you know, I'm like you, like my parents from the Caribbean, we know a lot of personal support workers, we know a lot of support workers, but they have families too, that they are raising, they have parents that they're taking care of, they have people that they're sending money home to, and that hasn't come up in this election at all. There's a holistic lens that we're missing, and... Oh. Anyway, let me stop preaching and move no, on. No, no, you're you're, you're absolutely you're, you're no, you're completely right. And uh, you know this uh, this uh, this election uh, came at a time when it shouldn't have, and it came at a time when I'm still relatively new to this role. But certainly, one thing that that I've uh, recognized and uh, and our, our party too. I mean, it's just part of our our 
our value system, but which I, I think that we we still uh, in the in this short election, uh, you know, still um, need to capture is that interconnectedness. You know, all of the all of these things are are interconnected. They all have. You know, we always talk, we talk about intersections and whatnot, but it, it is important to recognize those things. There's knock-on effects to all of, all of these things. Um, my grandma, for instance, helped to raise us and uh, her solution to that issue was to basically never sleep, as far as I could tell. You know, she worked the night shift so that, uh, and my mom was a teacher, but she also taught, she taught during the day in elementary school and then taught in the evenings as well. She taught adults because she was sending money home, um, as was my grandma, and bringing people over. And so my grandma would uh, feed us and make sure that we had done our homework and that we were in bed, and then she would leave and go work all night. Um, yeah. And then she would come back, she would be back in the morning just around the time we were getting ready to go to school and catch a few hours and then start it all over again, right? Well, that's 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 basically how the old people did it, right? That's how they survive. But I, you know, since we're talking about the interconnectedness, how does this connect to housing strategy? Because the Conservative Party has declared a housing first strategy for homelessness, which declares housing as as a fundamental right, uses federal assets to address housing supply and encourages building public transportation infrastructure that connects homes and jobs by bringing public transit to where people are buying homes and require municipalities receiving federal funding for public transit to increase density near that transit. This seems to be the beginning of the reimagining of our cities and how does the Green Party housing strategy, since we're talking holistically, compare in that way and what is the strategy for reimagining urban planning in that climate-friendly way? Like, what are well, those key that, principles? Yeah. Well, it sounds like the Conservatives, uh, as, as all the parties do, uh, have taken um, quite a bit of, of what we proposed back in 2019 uh, and 2015. Um, and, you know, on the one hand, that's great. It is, it is because, again, if we're all there for the same people, then uh, the more that uh, these ideas can be uh, accepted and 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 um, and uh, co-opted by all of the parties, and the more likely it is that they'll happen. Uh, at the same time, you know, <laughs> with more Greens elected, I would say that maybe we would have had these things sooner, um, because you know, in 2019, we were talking about the importance of um, of ensuring that public transportation went all the way out, and not just public transportation, but that we ensured that people could fully live, holistically live in the in the places uh, where they had their homes, um, that they didn't have to go always into the urban center uh, for entertainment, uh, for community events, um, for shopping, for all the things, uh, you know, that helped improve quality of life. Uh, you know, we've talked about having a hub and spoke system uh, for rail transportation and bus transportation. Um, in terms of affordable housing, you know, again, it, it boggles the mind why we're in this election, because it seems like all of a sudden, you know, that thing, everyone's gotten religion. <laughs> Everybody's, everyone's come on board because um, Paul Manley, our MP for Nanaimo Ladysmith, uh, during the last session of Parliament, he called for, um, for Parliament uh, to, he called for an emergency debate, and also he introduced a motion to recognize the twin crises of affordable housing and uh, homelessness. 
uh, along with a series of concrete proposals that had come to us you know, from the housing um, civil society advocates about what we could concretely do. And in, in none of that crickets is, is, all, is all we heard after that. Um, and so I think for people in Canada, part of this, this election is going to come down to um, sincerity and who you actually, who is there talking about these things outside of the context of the election and who you think is actually committed to doing uh, the work. Uh, because the solutions are there, they, the, the, they're there. They're there. Uh, there's a lot of consensus amongst urban, urban planning specialists about what we need to do. Um, we just need to actually create the circumstances in Parliament uh, to make them happen. And what are what do they say that we need to do that the Green Party kind of promotes or is part of your platform, basically? Part of it is just returning to the good common sense that we had about these things decades ago and that um, in a way we, we need to return to. You know, there are a number of areas where we, we have just lost our way. Uh, where we we knew what we we knew what needed to be done and and we used to do it um, and we also of course have comparative examples from other jurisdictions where they have much more successfully addressed uh, the issue these issues you know of rising cost of housing etc. So for instance, we used to invest in um, co-op housing, not-for-profit housing, social housing, um, community supportive housing intensively. Uh, Toronto Centre, where I'm running, has the most units of, of co-op housing of anywhere in the country. And these communities remain, remain vibrant, mixed, you know, mixed income communities, uh, extraordinary places. Um, so we stopped investing in all of that in the 90s. And I don't know what we thought would happen. I don't know what we, you know, I don't know if we thought we had solved that issue or, or whatnot, but um, it's been about 30, 40 years since we properly invested in that. And so we just need to go back to what we had done before. Uh, it's the only way we're going to ensure that we can have a diversity of people and a diversity of incomes uh, in urban centers. Uh, we need to incentivize uh, rental housing, purpose-built rental housing, uh, because we need to accept that not everyone is either going to be able to own um, a place or maybe they don't want to own uh, but they need to have the security of knowing that even if they're renting, it can be for life if they want it to be. No one's going to rent a victim. No one's going to, you know, ask them to leave or jack up their rent uh, to, the, to the, the point where they have to go. It has to be stable. It has to be reliable so you can feel like it's home, your home, even if you're renting. Um, we haven't incentivized that enough either. Um, we need to, uh, on an urgent basis, we need a benefit for all of those low-income, marginalized people who have been falling into arrears during the pandemic. Uh, for those of us who live in Toronto, $2,000 a month if you've lost your, your job is not going to cover your, just even your rent. Um, and so people have little by little been falling into arrears. And so the kind of subsidy that we gave to uh, businesses uh, for their rent, for their commercial rent, uh, housing advocates have been asking for the same thing for a low income residential tenants, or we're gonna see a lot of evictions. Um, we want to take the spec. I mean, like I could go on. We want to take the speculation um, out of out of real estate, and the commodification of, of real estate needs to end as well, uh, so that we're focused on uh, housing being a, a place that people can call home first, um, and that includes really regulating foreign investment um, in real estate, uh, regulating speculation of, of house flipping in real estate uh, as well. Um, and we also need to redefine what affordable means. Uh, here in Toronto, for instance, affordable just means market rent. 
that's not affordable. <laughs> uh, market rent in, in many neighborhoods, you need to be making many multiples of the min minimum wage uh, to be able to, uh, to pay for that. So that's clearly not affordable. Uh, and we need to fundamentally recognize that housing is a human right. Because once you recognize that and actually in your bones recognize that, everything flows from that. You know, you look at your situation, you say, well, are we, are we reinforcing and reflecting that belief or not? And that helps to guide all of your actions. So part of it ultimately still is a, a cultural shift uh, in terms of how we uh, view uh, the right to access to housing. So I have to go, uh, I have an appointment at five, but I do want to, well, two things. One, I want to say that like in the two issues we've talked about housing and long-term care, you really strike me as a big systems thinker and you really want to get to like the root cause of an issue, um, which I think is very refreshing and something that a lot of the other platforms and you know parties don't really seem to really consider. You know, we've got the Conservatives doing one band-aid approach, the NDP doing another, and the Liberals doing another. And, and I always end up find I always find myself wanting a bit um, because I'm like, do they understand what the problem is? And like in speaking to Hopefully in speaking to them, I can maybe get a sense of whether or not they do understand what the problems are. But I think that your experience as like a black woman definitely gives you a unique perspective on these very big complex problems that is gonna, would be beneficial in the house and for all parties to consider um, in the future. But no, but you're, you're right. I mean, you know, this is why we need more diversity in politics. I can speak about these things with the sincerity of someone who spent the majority of her childhood living with six people in a one-bedroom apartment uh, with no air conditioning and a walk-up, you know? Yeah. So I understand all of, all, you know, those firsthand. I'm not particularly wise. I've just, you know, grown up that way. Uh, and yeah. so the more, the more um, perspectives you can bring in, the more likely it is you don't miss those policy angles. You don't miss those holes. And as you said, you can get to the heart of things, the heart of the matter. Yeah. Okay, right. screenshot. All right, thank you. Bye. 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 Bye.